Welcome to a special edition of the Reform Brotherhood. I have here with me Reverend Todd Pruitt, who you may know, I hope you know, from the Mortification of Spin podcast. He is an ordained teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America, and he is currently the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Todd, how are you today? Hey, doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. And uh, Todd was so gracious. He took this uh, recording appointment here with basically no real notice. So I'm uh, super thankful to get someone of his caliber to talk through what we're going to talk through today. So we are going to um, talk through, some of the listeners may know, uh, especially if you follow my social media, you may know that there was uh, sort of a big meeting last week uh, of the Presbyterian Church of America. You might say the biggest meeting that the Presbyterian Church of America actually has. Uh, and they met for their annual uh, General Assembly. So, Todd, most of our listeners, uh, if I had to guess, probably come from a sort of Reformed-ish Baptist background. Um, I know that my wife, when I was sort of live streaming the uh, the proceedings, was kind of like, you don't see other groups having these big meetings. She's a Baptist. So the whole thing was a little confusing to her. And I know that even as I've learned about Presbyterianism in the last really two years, I still there's still things that happen that I don't quite understand. So if you could maybe just explain um, in a real sort of 30,000 foot view what a general assembly is and kind of the role that it plays in maybe like Presbyterianism theoretically. And then if there's any sort of specific things that are a little different about the PCA. Yeah. So if you come from um, a Southern Baptist background or, or if you are a Southern Baptist, um, it would be roughly equivalent to, although quite a bit different in other ways, but still roughly equivalent to um, the, uh, the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I say only roughly equivalent to because the Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist churches are less a denomination as they are a, a confederation of, of autonomous churches agreeing to participate with one another, hold to a common confession of faith and participate together in missions. Uh, pr- Presbyterian Church in America has a much more denominational structure, like uh, you know the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod would, or uh, the Anglican Church would. Uh, meaning there's uh, there's a, a stronger sense of connectionalism. Churches are um, accountable uh, to one another. Um, uh, pastors are accountable to presbyteries and uh, sessions. Uh, that is, the body of elders of each church are accountable to. Um, other sessions and presbyteries on up the line to the church courts. And so uh, our structure is you start uh, starting at the bottom. You have, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the session of each church or the body of elders of each church. And then the next court above each church's session would be the local presbytery. And then the next court of the church above that is the general assembly, uh, the full company of um, all of the uh, uh, presbyteries of uh, the, the Presbyterian Church in America, and so uh, it, so so things that are decided, um, uh, made constitutional um, in a general assembly, uh, become you know binding, uh, if you like, uh, across the the denomination. Now, there's a whole lot of of things that we you know vote on and commend and that kind of thing that don't necessarily become constitutional. Right. Um, but, uh, but weight is given to, to various decisions made at, at the general assembly, uh, level. Great. Now, so we got, so we gather every year, you know, we gather every year to discuss, uh, the business of the church, discuss overtures that various presbyteries make and, and would like us to consider. And then, uh, some things every once in a while, it doesn't happen very often, but, um, well, no, it does happen. You know, certain minor changes will, will be discussed and then voted on perhaps in the book of church order, tweaking of language here and there, that kind of thing. Sure. Now, how does this differ um, from something like Anglicanism or Episcopalianism? Because you keep you keep using the language of above, but I suspect that's probably more 
just a limitation of how we have to think about things sort of like as a tier. So could you maybe explain the difference between particularly like the Anglican position and how, how Presbyterians understand things? Yeah. So Presbyterians, we would call ourselves grassroots. Uh, we govern from below, so to speak. Um, now, uh, in other words, the processes are, are worked from the ground up. Um, we don't have bishops um, like you would have in, a, in, in an Anglican or, or Episcopal church. Um, and those tend to have top-down structures. Now, certainly, if something is decided in, 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 our, in our highest court, uh, the General Assembly, then that speaks for the denomination. But, those, but, but anything the General Assembly considers comes up to it from the lower courts. In other words, General Assembly just doesn't decide something and then pass it down right. to the Presbyterians and churches. It has to come from the other direction. The, nothing comes to the General Assembly that doesn't come up to it from the local presbyteries and nothing comes from those local presbyteries. It doesn't come from from the, the, the sessions of the churches. Right. And so um, you can correct me if I'm out of place here, but my understanding is you have the local session, which is constituted of uh, one or more teaching elders, which are the, the sort of um, ordained by other teaching elders members of the church. They're not members of that local church, but they're members of a regional church. And then you also have the ruling elders, which are lay leaders from within that local congregation who are also ordained or appointed by that church to serve as elders. And then those, those uh, ruling and teaching elders constitute the local session of the church. And then all of those sessions together constitute uh, a presbytery, or I suppose technically when they come together, they constitute a presbytery. And then all of those presbyteries kind of come together to constitute once a year a general assembly. So it's not as though there's some sort of, uh, I said to someone the other day, if you want to get real technical from like an ontological perspective, the quote unquote PCA as a thing doesn't really exist as a thing except during general assembly when that group is actually gathered. Otherwise, Presbyterian Church in America is really just all of the different presbyteries which is comprised of all the, ses the sessions together. Is that pretty close? Great. So I, I wanted to just um, touch base on a couple big points, uh, big things that happened at the conference. So you're, you're right. I made a lot of jokes online and everybody thought it was funny about like how it took like 20 minutes to figure out whether or not they were going to dismiss for dinner the first night. So yeah, so like there's all these different little kind of uh, sometimes pedantic, but I wouldn't say pedantic, but they're, they're important procedural reasons. They don't just dismiss because they want to. They dismiss because that's the will of the whole body, and that's why they take a vote for it. But there are there are other more significant things that happen throughout the course of especially the General Assembly that I wanted to highlight. So before we get started with kind of my big points, what what do you think if you had to pick out sort of the big um, the big sort of cultural or institutional significant things that were decided upon at this General Assembly? Well, uh, there's a reason why um, this particular General Assembly had the largest number of commissioners there they'd had in some years, um, because uh, there were some really important things coming before us, and important to the, the, the culture and the theology of the, of the PCA. You know, somebody had, had once the overtures started rolling in in the months before GA and we were seeing the various overtures the overtures committee was going to consider, um, somebody dubbed this general assembly the gender assembly. Yeah. Um, because so many of the overtures dealt with um, uh, sex, sexuality, or gender in, in one way or another. Um, and for obvious reasons, uh, you know, the Revoice Conference, the first one last summer and the second one this summer, um, and the strong connection it has to the, to the PCA, um, as well as the Southern Baptist Convention, um, that put us in a position where um, local presbyteries were energized to speak to the issue and to get something before the General Assembly that would help to draw some lines um, in a little bit clearer detail. Um, so so that was that was a big matter. Uh, the issue, once again, that we dealt with 
at 2018's General Assembly about non-ordained persons serving on boards and committees, which um, would be a, a mechanism by which we could begin uh, ordaining women to church office. Right. Um, that, that was once again back before the assembly, even though last year it was um, soundly defeated. It was, it was brought back again. Uh, and then one kind of interesting, um, well, well the, the, uh, an, another vote that went down had to do with um, uh, the Calvary Presbytery in South Carolina um, and the uh, Committee for the Review of Presbytery Records. And this gets, right. this gets into kind of the minutia of how, uh, you know, Presbyterians do things, but, but, but um, uh, uh, kind of sh- long story short on that, uh, there, there, was, there was a vote that um, bothered a lot of us because um, it, it's, it, it potentially sets a precedent where, uh, or opens a way where uh, presbyteries can be uh, pressured or maybe ultimately even required to, to not tell uh, a, an elder, a teaching elder, um, in their in their presbytery that uh, that they cannot uh, teach according to their own exceptions to the Westminster standards. Now that again, that's going to sound complicated to a non Presbyterian, but what it means is is when a, a guy is ordained into a presbytery as as an elder, particularly a teaching elder, um, he can. Th- there's a few areas where he can take exception to the Westminster standards, our confession of faith, uh, the larger and the shorter catechisms, uh, you know, things like um, the days of creation, um, second commandment provisions, um, Lord's day uh, provisions, those kinds of things and say, you know, I, I take an exception to that. It, it's, and basically what's ruled is, is that this is a departure from the Westminster standards, but because it doesn't affect the, you know, the, the, the heart of, of our, doctrinal system will allow you to take that exception. But it's always been understood that if you take one of those exceptions, you can't go into your church and then teach according to your exception. You still have to uphold and you take vows that you're going to uphold what it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, long long story long, um, they, uh, uh, the the, the Committee on the Review of Presbytery Records um, takes a position basically um, where they, they, they don't at this point, except that a presbytery can insist that one of its ministers uh, can't teach according to his uh, exceptions, but needs to teach only what's in accordance with the Westminster standards. And that bothered a lot of us because, um, uh, you know, we, uh, if, if we're going to do that, then we need to rewrite the vows we take. Right. Um, you know, so, so that there was that kind of quirky thing. And then one other kind of weird thing, uh, was uh, just because I think it operated, it, it felt like it was operating sort of as a bellwether early on in our, in our business on Wednesday, when we, we took a vote that had to do with our membership, that is the Presbyterian church in America's membership in the national association of evangelicals. And that was kind of a strange kind of divisive moment yeah. over yeah, something that, that really didn't, didn't need to be, um, uh, but, but it was curious, and I think it, I think it kind of pointed to uh, some of the real differences in thinking yeah. uh, among among those of us who are elders in the PCA. Yeah, that was one of the things I noticed. Um, just in case people are interested, um, if you go over to the PresbyCast, uh, their July 3rd episode is a really handy wrap-up. PresbyCast is like major inside baseball for Presbyterianism. But um, Dr. Aquila was on the show and he he went through that issue with presbyteries and exceptions quite well. And for those who are listening, who are kind of wondering internally what the differences are between different Orthodox uh, Presbyterian denominations, that the fact that the PCA allows exceptions is a major difference from like the OPC, for example, which at least in principle doesn't allow someone to say, well, I don't agree to that. If someone explicitly and with knowledge says, I don't agree with this part of the Westminster Confession, they're not going to make it through their ordination exams, at least according to their book of church order. Like things happen on the ground a little different sometimes, but that's one of the differences people might um, might want to look at. So you mentioned the um, the vote to depart from the um, 
National Association of, of Evangelicals. And what I noticed listening to the debate of that, um, and then again, when uh, there was sort of the debate around uh, the national statement and revoice, which we'll get to in a little bit, is there was one group that was sort of making really specific doctrinal scriptural arguments. And that was the group in this case that was trying to convince the assembly to vote in favor of leaving the uh, NAE. And then there was another group that was um, making, I don't want to say in this case, they weren't necessarily emotional appeals, although there was a bit of that too, but they were making a pragmatic argument about what it might say to people or what it might mean or what what leverage we might lose. And I say we like I'm part of the PCA, I'm not, but what leverage the PCA might lose in terms of political action if they if they sever their relationship with the NAE. So tell me a little bit about kind of what the what the side and I'm I I know you fairly well from your podcast and also from interacting with you a bit. I know your positions well. I'm going to assume you were on the side saying we should get out of Dodge and, and let the NAE go. So tell me a little bit about the arguments in favor of leaving the NAE. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, the uh, the teaching elder, the pastor who, who stood before the assembly to, uh, to, to advocate the position that we ought to leave the National Association of Evangelicals, I think really um, made his case very well. Um, and basically, he summed it up this way. Uh, we're not a good fit. Um, uh, we, we, we believe in freedom of conscience, and, and there's the financial aspect as well. So now in terms of fit, the point is that the Presbyterian Church in America is the only conservative reform denomination that's a part of the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, uh, we're the last one left. Others have all withdrawn, and uh, primarily because um, of the weakness of the evangelical in the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, National Association of Evangelicals is home to a lot of uh, not very evangelical denominations. Uh, You'll find your word faith people in there and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, Ted Haggard uh, was a past president of the NAE, if that gives you any idea. And it's not that there's nobody who's decent in there. It's just that it's so broad that, you know, there's no meaningful doctrinal identity. Yeah to the National Association of Evangelicals, other than they're not Roman Catholic. That's about the only distinctive you can pay. Right. And so there's that issue of, of, of fit. But also, you know, like the, the PCA's annual dues, and here's the, the issue of finances, the P- PCA's annual dues are $25,000. You know, so $25,000 plus travel expenses for um, our, our stated clerk and his staff that attend all the meetings, you know, you're, you're getting into around $35,000 a year we spend of, of, you know, the money that people tithe to the PCA to be a part of a, an organization that I still don't know what we receive anything from. I mean, I don't know what we get out of it. Um, and then there's, you know, the issue of freedom. Um, uh, any individual person, individual church or individual presbytery of the PCA is free to be a member of the National Association of Evangelicals if they so choose and want to pay the membership dues. But why, you know, and again, this this would violate the PCA's kind of identity, which is a bottom-up, you know, freedom type, freedom of association type thing. Uh, We we don't have issues where uh, the, uh, you know, there's this top-down, every church basically is going to be represented. You know, so what we have now is a structure where every church in the PCA, whether they want to be or not, is represented in a sense by the National Association of right. Evangelicals. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want them representing me. And, and so it just makes no sense. And, and, but the arguments of those that were wanting us to remain in it were all these things like, you know, I remember a couple of guys saying things like this. You know, the world is watching whether or not we're going to have unity. And I thought the world doesn't care about the National Association of Evangelicals and whether or not the PCA is a member. Are you kidding me? They don't care a bit about that stuff. They don't know about that stuff. Um, You know, and and then there was this idea, well, you know, we're there because, you know, we can exert influence. Well, it doesn't seem like we have. Yeah. Because, because the, the National Association of Evangelicals has not become more conservative and more reformed, just the opposite, actually. So it, it, it actually looks like, no, we don't have influence there. So that was just a strange thing that, that guys would fight 
for us to, to continue to pay over $30,000 a year to be a member of an organization that does nothing for us. I, you know, I just made me think, why are they so committed to that? It, it, I mean, I can speculate, but I'm, I'm going to try not to. Yeah, I thought it was a little bit strange. And, you know, the one thing that um, that struck me as really strange was, you know, they kept people kept on talking about like, um, well, here's there's this legislation that's coming through in California. And if we don't stay part of the National Association of Evangelicals, who's going to fight that battle? And I'm left I'm left thinking, have you read some of the stuff that the National Association of Evangelicals has said? Because actually like staying a part of that may actually expose the PCA to legal problems because the National Association of Evangelicals not only has member churches that are on that end of the spectrum, or I don't even want to call it a spectrum, that take that position that churches shouldn't speak out against homosexuality, that churches should be open and affirming with the rainbow flags and not talking about the Noahic Covenant and talking about the other rainbow flags. And, and so being associated with that, well, then when someone sues the PCA because they wouldn't let their, you know, they wouldn't let their son and their son's boyfriend get married in the church. Well, then the, the, the lawsuit is like, well, they're associated with this group that says it's okay. So how can this church say it's not? So it, it struck me as a weird sort of a thing. And I have a number of friends um, through my online interactions, especially in the Reform Pub, who are ruling elders in the PCA. And I could just feel like the disappointment in their voices when that vote came through. And they, they're just disappointed that like their perspective, their position, even though it's the right position, um, just wasn't, it just didn't carry the day. And that, I mean, that's, that's a side effect, a side effect. That's a feature. It's not a bug. It's a feature of Presbyterian government that sometimes you lose the vote, even if you're right. And you just have to trust the will of the assembly, but that's still a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and some of us, that was one of the, that was the first kind of big vote we took at this year's yeah. general assembly. And some of us saw that kind of as a bellwether. We were thinking, okay, is this the way all of the votes are going to go? Are all of the, you know, is, 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 are all of the guys that are kind of in the middle, are they, are they going to break left on every vote? Yeah. And that was concerning to us because uh, for some of us, it was just a no brainer. You know, why should we spend tens of thousands of dollars a year on an organization that has crept a little leftward, um, has become more politically active, which again, um, you know, Presbyterians are very careful to, to try to not um, uh, be, be uh, make, you know, make, make public political statements. Right. We, we leave those kinds of things to the conscience um, of, of individual Christians. Well, the NAE is, is, has become more politically active. And, and what happens is, is that when a politician, and they will do this, when Democrat politicians um, see that the NAE agrees with their position on border policy, for instance, and that Democratic senator or congressperson is then able to get up and say, the National Association of Evangelicals agrees with me on this. Yeah. Well, you've, you know, within the member churches of that, there'd be a whole, there'd be thousands and thousands who don't agree with them right. on that. But because we're members as a denomination, the head of the NAE is able to speak for us. And that's a problem. And Presbyterians ought to be against that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I had that thought too, is that, you know, the, the most, I mean, there was good biblical, like exegetical arguments involving, you know, positions that they've taken and why, why the PCA should distance themselves from those positions. But the one from a sort of a polity perspective that, that sort of like, I, I mean, I was already saying that PCA should leave anyways, but the one that was most compelling to me was that element of freedom of association, that there is this de facto association now that each, not only each session and presbytery, but also each member of each Presbyterian church has in this with the National Association of Evangelicals that they can't they can't separate themselves from unless they want to leave the PCA. So I actually I, I was glad to see and for those who are sitting on the edge of their chairs, I was glad to see that the middle sort of the middle bell people didn't break left on everything. It seems like that was my impression was that was really the only really significant thing that the mid shifted left on. And I don't even think that it was a shift left. I think it might have actually been more a matter of fear I think they were convinced by the arguments that like we need the NAE to fight our battles. And you know, that that's a tough situation to be in. Yeah, and and just a a a 
a, a misunderstanding of what constitutes church unity. You know, yeah. one of the uh, a, a ruling elder uh, that I know s- s- took to the floor to to advocate our leaving the NAE, and he and he just said, you know, I hear brothers talking here about uh, that leaving the NAE is going to, to you know to be schismatic and bringing yeah. division to the church. And he said, brothers. The National Association of Evangelicals is a 501c3 corporation. Yeah. If we decide not to be a part of a particular 501c3, that is not schismatic. Right. That's not dividing the church. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. And I think um, I think Joseph Piper made a similar kind of point in one of his addresses, too. So I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I wanted to move on because I, I suspect this is going to be the one that most people have heard a little bit about um, and probably have heard some things that aren't 100% accurate. Um, and I wanted to talk uh, about kind of two elements of this. So I wanted to talk about the Nashville statement uh, and the fact that it was uh, that there was a vote. We'll, we'll get into what it was, but there was a vote in the PCA somehow associating the PCA with the Nashville statement. And there's probably a lot of misconceptions about what exactly that is. And then I want to talk a little bit about particularly the speech by Greg Johnson, who, for those who don't know him, I wouldn't have recognized him out of a crowd until uh, until he got up at the PCA. People in the PCA probably would. But Greg Johnson is one of the architects of the Revoice Conference, which is sort of a, I, I would say it's a new theological movement within Reformed Christendom. Um, and I, I say Reformed Christendom the same way that I talk about Karl Barth being within Reformed Christendom, as in not really in terms of theology, but yes, in terms of institutionally, it's coming out of a Reformed body. Um, so tell me a little bit about, because both you and I were vocal when the Nashville statement and when the um, the more recent Dallas statement came out, that this isn't really the kind of thing that Presbyterians should be getting all excited about because it it's sort of an extra ecclesiastical document that then becomes a measure of orthodoxy without any real ecclesiastical weight behind it. But I think that, that this actually, at least four people in the PCA, it changed a little bit at the General Assembly. So tell me a little bit about what the overture was in, in relation to the Nashville statement how the vote went down. And then we'll talk a little bit about what does that actually mean on the ground for Presbyterianism? Yeah. So the overture, um, overture number four uh, was from uh, the Calvary Presbytery uh, in South Carolina. Uh, And the overture was that uh, the General Assembly um, commend as biblical uh, the Nashville statement. Uh, We don't use the language of adopting. In other words, it doesn't become constitutionally binding. Uh, Overture four doesn't suddenly become a new doctrinal statement uh, in addition to our other doctrinal standards. It's simply that the the General Assembly says, we believe the language of the the Nashville Statement is biblical, and we encourage people uh, to read it. Okay, so that's the the overture, basically. And uh, we we knew that it would be controversial. Now, uh, you know, part of what's strange about this is that when the Nashville Statement was first uh, uh, released and it came through the council, uh, on biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, I announced that I was not going to be signing it for one thing. It was in the middle of the Trinity debate when, when all this was going on right about the time of the Trinity debate. And so, um, I, I was not in the mood to sign anything from CBMW at that time. But, but the other thing is that I, I just tend to shy away from signing non ecclesiastical things. I just, no, don't tend to sign, but particularly if I feel pressure that I'm supposed to, yeah. <laughs> then, then I, I will just go, no, nah, no, nah, I don't need to. Um, that said, you know, on mortification of spin, Carl Truman and I both said that, you know, those were the reasons we weren't going to sign it. But Carl and I both also stated very clearly that we believed that the substance of the statement itself was perfectly biblical, right. that, that, that everything in the affirmations and denials are, are things that any Christian who believes what the Bible says um, should be able to affirm those affirmations and denials. And, um, and so once it became a, um, a, an overture from a, a, a particular presbytery, at this time in the PCA's history, given the error of revoice that is invading our denomination, for me at that point, it, it was a pretty easy uh, thing for me to vote yes on, yeah, um, be, because because of those things. Now, um, so so that night, that late night Thursday night, when this came up, the the, the debate was vigorous. My name, uh, Carl Truman's name, Amy Bird's name were all invoked by one of the people who were against us 
commending the Nashville statement. Well, none of those people, you know, signed uh, the Nashville statement. And so um, I, I, I stood to, uh, to speak, uh, but time ran out right before it was my turn to get up. But I was, I was just going to explain briefly why I voted for it, um, that I believe that the affirmations and denials are perfectly biblical, and that um, I was going to tell a story as well. You know, you had some guys telling stories. I was going to tell a story about people in my church who struggle daily against same-sex attraction and are struggling faithfully and are struggling uh, and, and walking in holiness and who very much want the Presbyterian Church in America to speak very clearly on this issue. And uh, uh, so um, th- this is not, this was not a thing where, well, anybody who struggles with same-sex attraction or, or loves and cares about those who do uh, is going to be against Overture 4. And only those mean old conservatives who do nothing but condemn people, they're going to want the Nashville statement. Well, that's just prejudicial, dishonest hogwash. Um, I'm a pastor of a local church. I care for people every week in my church who struggle at precisely this point. Um, Men and women who are in my church in part because we speak clearly and compassionately on this issue. Yeah. You know, I thought um, I didn't see all of the, I didn't see any of the debate except for what I I managed to find on YouTube after the fact. I thought that Kevin DeYoung's um, address was very on point. That he he got up and he gave me I had got the impression that it was kind of towards the end of the debate that he was sort of late in the game is that was that right or was he okay so he kind of got up after the whole whole debate had started to unfold the the different perspectives were there this was after Greg Johnson spoke and and he basically said like there's a picture that's being painted of biblical fidelity and and affirming to this statement on one side and pastorally sensitive on the other and we can't we can't do both we can't speak clearly and strongly against something that the Bible clearly indicates as a sinful disposition and a sinful desire. And at the same time, be pastorally sensitive. And I thought he just dismantled. I mean, Kevin DeYoung has a way of doing that. He's such a clear thinker and such a clear communicator. He just, and you could hear it in his voice. His, his remarks were very pastorally sensitive. So it wasn't, it was just, he got up and said, look, this is not the vote that we're having. We're not voting biblical, uh, affirming this versus or pastoral, we're affirming this statement. And I, I think that what's helped me kind of resolve it, because when I first heard that this vote went down, I was actually kind of frustrated because there's been other times in church history where this kind of thing has happened, where an ecclesiastical body has adopted a non-ecclesiastical statement. And usually, and maybe this will turn out the way it is, I, I pray it's not, but usually that actually signals not a good trajectory because it's sort of a statement in some ways um, I understand in, in the current context why once it was brought before the floor, there was really no other option. But this sometimes signals that a, a ecclesiastical group is sort of looking at their own confessional statements and saying, well, it's not sufficient. And my argument has always been there's mechanisms to change the Westminster Confession or to add to it if it's not right. Um, but I think what's really helpful now is that we have a clear official stance that the majority of the commissioners at the PCA General Assembly have taken that the theology presented in this is accurate. And the way that it helped me to sort of feel feel okay about this is someone said to me, you know, this could have been a book that someone has published or a song. Like they could vote on a song that someone sings. They could vote on any theological statement to say this statement is a biblically faithful statement without then making that statement a confession of a part of the confession of faith. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and yeah, and, and that's and another thing, you know, we voted on uh, Overture 11 was to affirm as biblical uh, the booklet uh, that was actually a statement produced by the RPCNA denomination right. um, ca- called The Gospel and Same-Sex Attraction, which is an excellent, excellent resource. In fact, the, the, the two documents from the RPCNA, The Gospel and Same-Sex Attraction and The Gospel and, and Gender, have become probably my first two top go-to resources to put in people's hands. The one on gender, the one on same-sex attraction. They are excellent. And yet, and see, and this is where, this is where I think it's a bit of a poker tell. We had um, people fighting against that in Overture's committee and who voted against Overture 11 on the floor. Now Overture 11 passed, but, but we had plenty of guys who voted against it. Now, okay. They didn't like, 
um, the Nashville statement because it's, quote, not pastoral. Right. Well, the, the gospel and same-sex attraction, that booklet, is very pastoral. Yeah. It's very warm. Well, they voted against it also. And, and so, and, and, and that was a, a, a statement that came from an ecclesiastical body, right. a sister denomination, a sister reformed Presbyterian denomination yeah. um, uh, from their own synod. So this isn't some parachurch organization that we have some real, uh, you know, a couple of doctrinal issues with. This is a sister Presbyterian denomination yeah. that produced an outstanding clear biblical and pastoral statement and they still voted against it yeah yeah at, at that point it's kind of like i i'm very very careful and i'm growing more careful about casting aspersions on elders in god's church especially men that i haven't interacted with their writing or anything like that but i think that there is a certain point when you just have to call a spade a spade and say look there's nothing that's going to satisfy your criteria for voting this kind of statement so you have to really think about, well, what what is the issue? You know, we talk in like apologetics where if you're talking to an atheist, you say something like what evidence would convince you? Now, I'm a presuppositionalist, so I'm going to say no, but no evidence would convince you. But but you say that to them and you force them at some point to say there is no evidence. Then you can say, well, then this isn't an argument based in reason. This is an argument based in something else. And I think that this is kind of the same thing is that there's this group within the PCA Sometimes, I mean, some people paint it as though it's like, you know, there's 99% of the PCA is like this. And there's like three faithful pastors somewhere in Mississippi that are still on board with the gospel. I don't think it's like that. And I think the vote shows that. But there's these there's this group in the PCA that as much as they're seemingly wanting to present themselves as though, well, we're, we're opposing these statements against homosexuality on grounds that don't have to do with us affirming homosexuality as okay. At the same time, there's no standard by which they would be able to say, yeah, I'll go ahead and put my name on something that says it's not. And that's that's where I want to get. And I want to shift into to, um, Pastor Johnson's speech, because this actually the the SBC, uh, I don't know what they call it, convention, the annual meeting. I don't know what they call it. Yeah, it, it, the, the the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting is called the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> that, so, so in some ways, yeah. it's kind of the same thing. Like it's that's the Southern Baptist Convention is actually that gathering, not necessarily what we talk about. But they they had this resolution, and I'm not going to get into it, but they had this resolution about social justice and about uh, critical Marx theory. And one of the things that I'm seeing across the board that the the battleground is shifting. It used to be, can we prove from the scripture that this is or is not biblical? And now the the argumentation on the side that's sort of seeming to slip a little isn't really going in that direction. Now they're going sort of this therapeutic direction or this um, this felt need direction. And so so I I'm I'll um I'll edit in uh, the audio from um, Pastor Johnson's address, but he started out his address. With this this long story, well, it wasn't that long, but this story about how he how he learned he was gay at at this wedding in um, in the you know some Baptist fellowship hall, and how he couldn't take his eyes off the groomsmen. And I don't I'm not calling him a liar, but there was a number of things I already looked at that and went, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. How did everybody know you were looking at the groomsmen? First of all, second of all. Um, how is it then that some point later during the evening, some conversation came up about that groomsman's gay brother? Like, why were people talking about the groomsman? All of that aside, he started with this very emotional appeal. And this is where, you know, I was watching this and I, I commented before we started recording that it was heartbreaking to watch for a number of reasons. So I, I'm not going to ask you your opinion on this. If you want to share it, you're welcome to. But I get the impression from Greg Johnson that he is a genuine guy who genuinely loves the Lord and wants to serve him and has just gone way off base and has bought into a lot of these therapeutic um, kind of woke church. I, I, I hate the term neo-Marxist just because it's so inflammatory, but this sort of critical race theory, critical it's, intersectionality it's, thing. And yeah, it's critical. Yeah. It's got some, some ties into critical uh, theory and right. intersectionality for yeah. sure. Yeah, And so he, he um, let me find it here. Cause I want to actually quote him. Um, he was talking about the cost of uh, of his sort of his battle. And he says, so where that leaves me at age 46 is I'm a 46 year old virgin who's never so much as held hands. I've never had a romantic embrace. I've never hugged anyone romantically. I've had a history of struggle with pornography of which I'm now 15 years so sober. 
I'm mortifying the flesh every single day, and yet that has a cost. Jesus has washed me, and yet I'm in the fight for my life. And then he goes on to say, he says, the cost is this. There are no family photographs on my mantle because I had no family. The cost is that I, I know what it's like to sit alone in my apartment at Christmas because I have no family. The cost is that someday I will have to be buried and not cremated because there will be no one to receive my ashes. So what struck me about this is, first of all, I know that like it's a five minute speech. You can't do a full blown exegesis, but there is zero reference uh, in a direct way to the scriptures in any sense, except when he talks about counting the costs and how those who've left behind father and mother will be rewarded for it. But he's painting this picture like like fighting his sin, fighting his his temptation, which depending on which article you read by him, he says, yes, it isn't sin or no, it is, is sin. He's painting that like that's some big sacrifice. Phone number three speak uh, against uh, or in favor of the substitute motion. Um, uh, fathers and brothers, um, teaching Elder Greg Johnson from Missouri Presbytery. Um, I was not raised in a church or synagogue. I was raised by an atheist father in an atheist home and I shared that atheism and I was his gay son. I knew I was gay at age 11 uh, I was in a Baptist fellowship hall at a cousin's wedding when I realized this was in the summer of 1984 that I could not take my eyes off of one of the groomsmen. And I remember feeling a massive weight of shame. And then when I noticed that everybody was staring at me, I felt fear. It was that same day at that same wedding that somebody explained that the groomsmen had a brother that the family had disowned because he was gay and they were Christians and they could not tolerate somebody that disgusting. And that was the day I realized that Christians hate gay people. By God's grace, he pursued me. And in college, I became a Christian and trusted Jesus. I was baptized in a PCA church at age 20 and the next a year enrolled at Covenant Seminary, not because I had any interest in going into ministry, that took another decade, but because I wanted to catch up and make up for lost time. And I had read every single book that R.C. Sproul had written and purchased all of his VHS audio tapes and memorized them all. And I was still hungry. Um, at this point, I'm 46 years old and uh, still same-sex attracted. My orientation is not changed, and for those who are exclusively same-sex attracted, who are men, we don't know for certain of even, I've, I have, I've talked to every head of every ministry and can't find a single instance of same-sex attraction going away. And so where that leaves me at age 46 is I'm a 46-year-old virgin who has never so much as held hands. I've never had a romantic embrace. I have never hugged romantically. Uh, I have had a history of struggle with pornography, of which I am now 15 years sober. Uh, I am mortifying my flesh every single day, and yet that has a cost. Jesus has washed me, and yet I'm in the fight for my life every single day, and I don't regret that one bit. But the cost is this. The cost is that there are no family photographs on my mantle because I have no family. The cost is I know what it's like to sit alone at home in my apartment on Christmas Day because I have no family. The cost is that someday I will have to be buried, not cremated, because there will be no one to receive my ashes because my line ends with me. And I don't regret that. I accept that as a calling to suffer for the sake of Jesus, who says that those who give up fathers and mothers and husbands, wives and children and brothers and sisters for my sake will receive a hundred times more. And I love Jesus and I want to serve him and I'm willing to suffer for him because it's that beautiful. And yet, friends, when I read Article 7 of the Nashville Statement, it hurts because Article 7 says that it is a sin to adopt a homosexual self-conception. 
And we don't do that for any other people group. We don't tell alcoholics it's a sin to conceive of yourself as an alcoholic because drunkenness is a sin. It's the beginning of learning to manage your alcoholism and obedience to Christ so it doesn't define you. We don't tell paraplegics that they should conceive of themselves as able-bodied because that's God's ideal. Uh, we wouldn't tell an infertile woman that she needs to conceive of herself as fertile and she's unbelieving to conceive of herself as infertile because that's not God's design. Friends, I'm fallen, I'm broken, and Jesus has washed me and saved me. And my prayer is that you would consider the damage that will be done to people like me when Article 7 says that it's a sin to acknowledge our brokenness and our shame and the suffering and sorrow that goes with that. My prayer is that we will instead do the hard work of coming up with something biblically nuanced, theologically sophisticated, missionally sensitive, and pastorally sensitive so that people like me don't have to go through all of the suffering I had because their pastors will be well equipped to love people who are broken and same-sex attracted and waiting for glory. Thank you, brothers. Yeah, yeah, I, I've said it before, and, I, and I'll say it again. Um, when, when I hear the defenders of Revoice say that um, a, a, a man who struggles with same-sex attraction, um, that, that when he does not, when he abstains from having sex with another man, um, he's really paying a heavy price uh, to be a disciple of Jesus. And I just want to call nonsense on that. Um, I'm, I'm a married man. I've never committed adultery. And I don't consider it my cross to bear yeah. for having not committed adultery. I don't expect to get a golden star for not committing adultery. I consider that kind of baseline discipleship. I consider that disciple, I consider that the, the, the ABCs of discipleship, right. you know, not committing adultery. And so, so they, they, they have kind of a strange understanding of, of their, of their not engaging in homosexual activity as though it is, it is, it's their cross to bear. Well, no, that, that's just, that's basic Christian obedience. And I, and I hope that they continue to walk in that basic Christian right. obedience. The other thing you made reference to, to, to Greg's, and I agree with everything you said about Greg. I assume the best about him. I assume that he loves the Lord. I assume that he genuinely wants to minister uh, to, to, to people. Um, but he, 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 is, he makes routinely, he routinely makes uh, contradictory statements about his own same-sex attraction in terms of the moral status of his same-sex attraction. One statement, he'll say that same-sex attraction is sin. Another statement, he'll say it is a result of the fall. And another statement, he'll say it's not sin. Now, those are three different things. Yeah. For it to be sin, he and I would agree on. But there are other times where he's very careful to say it's a product of the fall. Right. Well, the problem there is that cancer is a product of the fall. Um, uh, tsunamis are a product of the fall. But we wouldn't call a tsunami or cancer sin. Right. Um, and then there are other times when, when he and, and the other people connected to Revoice are very clear that the same-sex attraction itself, just in and of itself, the attraction is not sin because it's not lust. Right. And, um, and, and that is very problematic because the fact is desire and attraction may be a little bit different in certain aspects, but they occupy the same moral landscape. Right. So, so that if a father says, this is my daughter, Emily, isn't she beautiful? You know, he's, he's, he's saying something perfectly appropriate. He's noticing right. that she's beautiful. But if he says, this is my daughter, Emily, who's beautiful, and I'm attracted to her, we immediately know something's very wrong yeah. there. Yeah. So attraction, attraction is not morally neutral. Um, uh, they, uh, attraction occupies the same moral dimensions as as desire. And, and, and again, if, if Greg would get consistent with what he says, then that would be helpful, you know, because one day and in one article or one interview or one statement, he says one thing about same-sex attraction. And then in another venue, he says something else about same-sex attraction. And, and, and part of that was made clear in his speech from the floor, because in his speech from the floor where he was 
um, uh, advocating for uh, voting no on Overture 4, which commends the Nashville Statement. He, he said specifically that Article 7 of the Nashville Statement excludes him. Right. It would exclude him. And this is Article 7, quote, we affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. We deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. Now, I would dare say that the vast majority of PCA church members agree with that affirmation and that denial. All it's saying is, is that I'm not going to take homosexual or gayness as, as a way that, that I conceive of myself. But in his very floor speech, you know, he, he said that he's gay and that he understands that Article 7 excludes him. And yet, in other statements, he has said that he does not conceive of himself, that this isn't his self-conception, that this isn't his identity. So which is it? Which is it? Is, is my question to Greg. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you bring an important point up in, in that there is a stunning lack of clarity, sometimes on both sides, actually, of the discussion in what we actually mean when we say, quote, same sex attracted, because there are people who will talk about that all the way from one end of I, I on a regular basis experience. And let's take the same sex part of it out of this. Just just to be clear that this isn't something we talk about that's just about homosexuality. Um, you know, if we were talking about cupcake addiction, right? There are people that would say, I, on an ongoing basis, have active desires to eat more cupcakes than I should, right? And I'm not trying to trivialize same-sex attraction. I'm trying to sort of bring this to neutral ground. So there's that end of it. And, and those people would say that what they're talking about when they say same-sex attraction is an active, ongoing, real desire that exists. And that is usually the conservative side of the conversation that defines it that way. I think that's probably closer to the historic understanding of the words we're using. And then there's this other side that wants to talk about it like it's this entirely potential, but not yet actualized possible desire that may happen. And when they say I'm same sex attracted, what they mean is that I experience a greater potentiality for that desire to be actualized than the average person in my demographic. And so we have everything from that spectrum and defined out of existence like that far end is where it's really just talking about potential. I'm not above any sin. So I'm a potential murderer. I'm a potential adulterer, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not a sinner actively because I'm murdering or, or, um, or committing adultery because I'm not doing that. I don't have a desire to do it, but I could. So that, that potential desire is not a sin. It's a result of my sin nature, but in itself, it's not a sin because it doesn't actually exist. But what Greg Johnson is doing is he vacillates somewhere between those two poles, usually a little bit closer to the middle where it's it's real, it's there, it's something I experience, but since I don't take action on it, it's not sin. And what this comes down to if, when I'm understanding the, the theological arguments that are happening around it is there's a doctrine called concupiscence. And one of the primary differences that that really, I mean, we all look at sola fide, we look at sola scriptura, the other five solas in the Reformed tradition, we look at tulip, we look at things about ecclesiology that, that are the causes for the break from the Roman Catholic Church. But one of the most um, sort of virulent and violent differences between Roman Catholicism and the Protestant traditions, especially Reformed Protestantism, is that we as Reformed Christians believe concupiscence is in itself sin. So the fact that we experience a propensity to commit sin is sin. The yeah, fact the desire and, right. to sin, the, des the desire to sin is sin. The attraction to sin is sin. Right, exactly. Um, and we understand that. And what Revoice has said is that no, not what they've done is they've created. And and actually, um, Carl Truman uh, checked with some of his Roman Catholic friends who are Roman Catholic scholars. Yeah. And he ran and he ran by them some of the um, uh, talking points of, of, of Revoice, some of the things that they've said about attraction. And even some of these Roman Catholics say, well, that's not even what we say. Right. In other words, in other words, some of the things that that um, Revoice is saying about the desire to sin and the attraction to sin, that kind of thing, are not only not Protestant, some of the things they're saying aren't even Roman Catholic. 
which which was an interesting thing to me, um, because even Roman Catholic scholars draw it a little bit closer than even what's being said by Revoice. Now, again, Rome and Protestants are in a different place in concupiscence, but but Rome actually draws it in a little bit closer than does Revoice, and and that ought to trouble them, but apparently it doesn't. Yeah. And what I would say is that I, I have yet, you know, I've, I've done the work of reading these guys. I've read Nate Collins and I've read Greg Coles and I've read um, Wes Hill. Um, and, uh, and and I've listened to the Revoice addresses. Um, and uh, they, what, what they are saying about same-sex attraction and, and, and gay identity um, in those books is very different from some of their public statements yeah. that they release to try to defend themselves. Very different. And I have yet to speak to a single defender of Revoice, who is also a pastor in the PCA, who has actually read any of the books by any of the folks from Revoice. Yeah. And so every time we have a, confe- a conversation and they defend Revoice and I bring up specific quotes from Nate Collins, Greg Coles, et cetera. They always say, well, I don't know. I haven't read the book, so I can't really say. Yeah. <laughs> At which point I want to say, then get out of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important. You know, the, the, the ninth commandment is something that I've been really sort of studying and digging into. And the, the propensity for Christians in this sort of internet age to just flat out not care about truth in terms of what uh, what a person writes, what they say, but then also what the, the consistency, right? In order to be subject to the ninth commandment, you have to be internally self-consistent. You can't say one thing at one time and then say another thing at another time. So I think that's a really important point is that we just need to take time at, uh, to read these things. And, you know, um, if you go to the Revoice website, this isn't like they're hiding it, right? Their, their face statements there to read, their perspectives, they have like, news they have like articles that you can read it's not like it's hidden and so i think we just people need to do the work of actually reading this stuff because if you don't take the time to read sort of academically what someone is saying they're going to push you over with their emotional arguments no problem like any of us could do that any anyone who has any decency or any decent skill in public speaking which i would hope that most pastors have some sort of level of proficiency in public speaking and rhetoric Anyone can make you believe anything if you haven't done the work to build a foundation of truth underneath it. So before we wrap it up, because I know that you um, you probably have other things to do today, I wanted to to sort of talk about now that the PCA has affirmed the national statement as biblically faithful, um, what does that mean in terms of future or what could that potentially mean in terms of future interaction for the Revoice Conference, for Greg Johnson? I mean, is this the kind of thing where like this could be a foundation for someone to bring charges in the future. Is this something that now a session could excommunicate someone or could put them under church discipline as a result of? Yeah. So the way this works in the PCA is that overture four, which passed. So officially uh, the Presbyterian church in America uh, does commend the Nashville statement as biblical. We say, okay, you know what? That's biblical and is fit to study and is fit to commend, but it has no binding power whatsoever. In other words, I can't bring, nobody in the PCA can bring charges against anyone for quote, not affirming the Nashville statement. Right. And so, so for charges to be brought um, against a, a pastor or a session or a presbytery in the PCA, it has to be along the lines of um, our confession. They have to be shown uh, to be contradicting uh, or undermining our confession of faith, which I would agree they do on the statements concerning uh, several of the statements in the confession concerning the nature of uh, of, of of sin. I would I would uh, suggest that they do contradict our uh, um, confessional statements. And what's going to have to happen if we're going to stop revoice? And I'm and I'm one of those guys in the PCA that believes revoice should not have the, 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 the doctrine of revoice should not have a seat at the table in our denomination yeah. and, and others in the PCA believe that it should have a seat at the table. I'm going to fight to make sure it does not have a seat at the table. I don't know if, if we'll be successful or not, 
Um, my sense is that we will be, because I think the majority of our laity, when they see this stuff coming out of Revoice, understands that this is not something that should be taught in our denomination. But if that's going to happen, then charges have to be brought right. against against individual elders that ha- that have advanced the doctrine, um, th- th- those doctrines and teachings associated with, re- with Revoice. Charges have to be made. Uh, that demonstrate very clearly, biblically and confessionally, uh, that those elders are out of accord with our confessional standards. Charges are going to have to be brought. Yeah. So and, now, and, and people don't like people don't like to do that, and no, I understand why. And it's but hard. It's going to have to happen. You know, it doesn't it doesn't always go the way you expect it to. But that that's part of Presbyterianism. You know, I had there's a guy I interact with online who's a total uh, he's a total hothead. He's like he's like the Donald Trump of Christian Facebook people. Like he says whatever he wants. He doesn't care about what people think. And he just plows ahead no matter what. And he's been basically saying like, well, because the PCA didn't, didn't string up Greg Johnson in the middle of the general assembly and tar and feather him right out of the building that they're, they're on a road to hell. He he basically doesn't understand Presbyterianism is like, this is intended. And like I said earlier, it's a feature, not a bug. It's intended to be a slow, deliberate, process that takes time to prevent people from doing rash things. So the last question I had about the Nashville statement is, so could the Nashville statement, or I suppose more appropriately, could this vote to affirm or commend the Nashville statement, could that now be used as evidence in charges? So, so pre, prior no. to, prior no, to last it can't, week. It, it, it can't be. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, yeah. for, for me, that yeah. that on one be. level makes me feel better about the way that it was adopted mm-hmm. because I, my concern yeah. is with these extra ecclesiastical documents that they somehow yeah. now become kind of de facto nope. ecclesiastical documents. Okay, that's good to nope. hear. Can, cannot be used. It has no binding or constitutional power at all. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have any other uh, any other points or thoughts about the General Assembly that you want to share? Any other big things we missed? You know, I, I walked away more encouraged than discouraged. There were several votes that confounded me, but and and the behavior of a few of our of our progressives really really bothered me. Yeah. Some of them, I mean, I mean, honestly, during the uh, the debate on um, uh, on Overture Four, there were two speeches uh, given from the floor uh, uh, against Overture Four that I think alienated a lot of people who who could have been won over to their position if they hadn't given such strange and disturbing and angry floor speeches. But, but that was, that was sad to see some of that behavior. Um, uh, but I, I, um, I, I think that um, next year's general assembly, um, we will uh, come back with some further support and some further actions to help draw a line in eliminating uh, the theology of revoice. Again, it takes time because it's Presbyterianism. It takes time, but the point is, is that, is that um, uh, these, these decisions tend to stick fairly well because the procedure is so sound. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that, that next year's General Assembly uh, will go even further to draw some, some more binding types of lines. Yeah. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. And, and I, um, you know, I come from a background where I didn't even think that church government was a thing. So for me to learn about Presbyterianism and the way that it works is really encouraging. You know, my academic studies was in the conciliar period of the third and fourth and fifth century. So for me to look at this, I, I'm seeing a lot of echoes of the way that things unfold in the Aryan controversy, right? We have the controversy. It kind of came out of nowhere with, with this one sort of church official who is teaching something he shouldn't. And then a council met and they made a decision, but it's not like Arianism went, went away in 326. There was another 50 years of time before the church sort of came closer to stamping out Arianism. And that's the way it's supposed to be is that there's, there should be this slow process where people are deliberate. They have debates, they have reasoned discussion and then the the church, the church, the men of the church in the the assembly of the church, the people who are responsible for shepherding and protecting God's flock, they come together and they make a statement as a unified whole 
even though there are some within that body who disagree that it's still a unified whole, that's how we do it with a vote, they make that statement for the good of the church and for the purity of, of God's bride. So I'm really encouraged by what I saw out of the General Assembly. Um, it, it does make me a little sad that, you know, that this even has to happen in the first place. But, you know, Paul says there has to be divisions among you because there's going to be people who are not, they're not of us. They're not, they're not among us. They're among us, but they aren't, they aren't us. And so we have to have these divisions to be able to identify the false teachings. Right. So, and, 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 and exactly. And the current uh, division over these issues of sex, same-sex attraction, et cetera, within the PCA, uh, those divisions um, are being caused by those who are advocating for revoice. Right. They started the fire on this. Exactly. They are the ones that are bringing division into our denomination. That's great. Well, Todd, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, for going through this with us. Um, I know that I feel like I know a lot more about how Presbyterianism works, and I hope the audience also Good. does. Do you have, uh, other than Mortification of Spin or uh, your church, do you have any other projects in the works, or are you just kind of plugging along every day? I'm, I'm working on a little something for a, um, a, a publishing house, and we'll, we'll, see, um, we'll, we'll see if it comes to fruition. Um, they, they, they asked me to do something, and... Um, um, I'm giving it a shot, and so far I'm encouraged by it. But uh, it'll take a bit more time. But we'll see if that uh, we'll see if that takes place. I'm sure it will. All right. So, yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, everybody, go check out Mortification of Spin. It's easily one of my top uh, top two podcasts that I subscribe to. Um, the commentary that you guys make is awesome, and I, I the thing I love about it is that you can tell that you guys are good, genuinely friends with each other, like a, a good podcast group has to get along and you can just tell there's a real natural give and take. So check out Mortification of Spin. Uh, also check out Todd's church. I'll put a link in the show notes to the sermon feed. Um, and until next time, Todd, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-huh.